Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. And as we do every Sunday morning, we read together. Let's read aloud. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to come to your word this morning, to read it, to study it, to grow in the knowledge and grace of your word. Anoint now and bless us all with your spirit. Grant us that wisdom. Grant us the understanding and knowledge necessary that we may live our lives as a light unto you and for you and through you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. The Apostle Peter had just preached his powerful, spirit-inspired, and wonder-filled sermon that set forth the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His particular emphasis was on the fact that the Lord Jesus came to the nation and people of Israel in agreement with the Old Testament prophecy as their promised Messiah, the one they had been looking for down through the uh, centuries, but failed to recognize and identify him when he came. He was rejected by them and delivered over to the Gentiles to be crucified. But Peter ended on a triumphant note and word in verse 36 when, it's, when he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now the Lord Jesus was and is God's anointed king, for certainly the word Messiah means the anointed one. And he is indeed the king. The Messiah was to be the king from the line of David to come. And so we know that he is God's anointed king. But Peter was making it clear to the hearts of the multitude gathered that the crucified Jesus was their Jewish Messiah. Now there had been a time when his own people had said in fulfillment, let's say, of a, of a parable of Jesus, as well as what was being said at the cross. Uh, for example, in Luke 19, verse 14, a parable of Jesus. His citizens, he said, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. This, this, is, was, this was the attitude, the heart, the, the very words of many people that day that Jesus was going to the cross. We will not have this man to reign over us. But even on, in the Gospel, 
at the cross. John 19, verse 15. They were crying out, Away with Him! Away with Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your King? The chief priests answered, We have no King but Caesar. Think about these things that were being said. Think about the attitude of the hearts when Jesus was taken to the cross. We will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. And it reminds us of those words of John in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But what a contrast in response now to Peter's sermon where he made clear that God had raised up from the dead the very one whom the nation rejected and he had confirmed his Messiahship to him in resurrection. Listen to the words here in verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard the words of, of Peter, but in, in essence, when they heard the words of the, uh, of the Psalms, when they heard God's Word, they were cut to the heart. They were pricked in the very heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What a contrast. We will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. But now with the truth exposed to them, they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? What a tremendous effect the apostles' message had on that crowd that day. And while there were probably some in that crowd who, who had cried, crucify him on the day of Christ's death, we're told that there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men. So it wasn't all just people who had been there in Jerusalem the day that Jesus died on the cross. I'm sure there was a few that were there in the temple that day. But it's clear from, from what Luke gives us in, in, in Acts chapter 2 that, that, they, that there were devout men there, Jewish men uh, in Jerusalem from those various areas that they, that they came for this feast. And so he was addressing primarily devout Jews who were awaiting the coming of Messiah with some sense of expectation. But when these men heard the proclamation given by Peter, we are told that they were pricked in the heart. They were cut to the heart. Now I know that we talked a little bit about this last time, but I wanted to pick up here again because I want to focus on a couple of words today that best describe the passage that we're studying here. From the sense of condemnation that would have come to their hearts from Peter's message to the confirmation of Jesus' Messiahship, we we move toward four things, but we're only going to look at two really today, even though we'll see all four in, this, in the text. But I, I want to focus primarily on conviction. The conviction, the Spirit's first work in the human heart. Because that is what we see here when we, when, when, when we read that they were cut to the heart. It is the Spirit's first work in the human heart. What we will see throughout the Scriptures here as well is consolation, which is the Spirit's continuing comfort. In other words, there wasn't, I had mentioned last week that there, this wasn't a, a message of condemnation. It was leading to consolation. It was leading to the comfort that would come in receiving the truth of what Jesus Christ had come to do for them. And so we'll see that comfort within the, the context of, the, of, of the, our text today. Then, of course, there's salvation, which is God's work in converting men's souls. And conversion, of course, was taking place that day. So this is an understood thing, something that we, we know is happening at that time. 
But lastly is the other word I want to focus on today, and that's separation. Separation, which is man's response to God's work. This is how we are to respond to what God is saying to us when He brings us the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so dealing then with conviction and separation, we look first at conviction being the Spirit's first work in the human heart. And we begin to see how, how God actually, in the, in the midst of this, this uh, uh, area where, where Peter is, is speaking to so many people, that, that the Holy Spirit has come alongside of them, we, we, we're going to see the effects of all of the things that we've talked about, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the book of Acts here. But in verse 37 it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, What shall we do? Now this is conviction indeed. This is the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon their hearts to hear what was being done to Jesus, to hear what Jesus endured, to have seen that it was a nation that put Jesus on a cross, but not only them, but them turning it over, turning him over to the Gentiles, so both Jew and Gentile, responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But to their very hearts, the one to whom Messiah has come, Conviction falls upon them. And, and, and I want you to consider that the enormity of their sin and the guilt had come home to their hearts. This is what happens when we come to the realization of our own sins before God, before a holy God. This is what happened to us before we came to that realization that, that we needed a Savior and that, that once we discover who that Savior was, that all we could do was call out for His mercy. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was all exposed now before them and, and there was no attempt to deny what Peter said. I think that's an important point here. There was no attempt to deny what Peter said. There was no attempt to argue with what Peter was saying. Peter stated the truth. Peter stated the facts. And then he backed it up with the Scriptures. There was no attempt at offering an excuse or, or rationalizing and trying to justify their actions and beliefs. They became desperate concerning their lost condition. And we have to understand that when the conviction of the Holy Spirit is working upon us, we need to realize there is to be a desperate uh, sense in our own hearts about what this sin or, or guilt is all about. And I, and I think about, uh, about salvation itself, that, that if we don't understand fully the very fact that when we come to Christ, it is in a very desperate situation. It is in a very desperate need. It is in a very desperate position that we find ourselves. Because before we came to know Christ, we are, we are dealing with the very issue of, of going from death to life. We've come to the realization that because we were separated from God, that we only had one course for us. And that was death, punishment for our sins, for having sinned against a holy God. But the hope was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die for our sins. And because of that, we can go from death to life. And then we can be kept in that life and assured of eternal life with the Lord.
But in the midst of that event, in the midst of that experience, there is conviction. A necessary part of our coming to grips with our life before God. Jesus in John chapter 16 verses 8 through 11 said when, when He, the Spirit, of course, has come, He says, and when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in Me, of, of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And these... People in this crowd before Peter that day, they had been convicted of sin, rebellion against God, a rebellion that climaxed at the crucifixion of Jesus. And their greatest sin was their failure to believe in Jesus. This is why Jesus said of sin, he convicts of sin because they do not believe in me. And in John chapter 3, verse 18, after those two wonderful verses, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Then He says, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's conviction of sin. And that's why Jesus said, when He's come, He will convict the world of sin, because they do not believe in Me. They had been convicted there that day. They had been convicted of righteousness. In that they, in crucifying Jesus, were in effect saying that Jesus was unrighteous. That only a wicked person would be hanged on a tree, and thus under God's curse. But the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus maintained and supported that Jesus was God's righteous servant. You see in Isaiah 53 verse 11, we are told, He shall see the labor of His soul and be satisfied. By His knowledge, my righteous servant, do you see that? My righteous servant shall justify many, for He shall bear their iniquity. So on that day, they were not only convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin and of righteousness, but they had been convicted of judgment as well. They had been convicted of judgment in that the death and resurrection of Jesus was a condemnation of Satan. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, they were a condemnation of Satan. You see, this was something that Jesus spoke of earlier on in in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Remember, Jesus is always looking to the cross. He says, "Now Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. But you see, he's speaking of the cross, and he's speaking of this judgment. And when the Holy Spirit came, he came to convict of this judgment. And, and, and this is what we need to understand here. Paul understood it in Colossians chapter 2 when he says in verses 13 through 15, he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us 
which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then He says in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, speaking of spiritual entities, speaking of those spiritual people in, or spiritual beings in high places, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Where? At the cross. That's where Satan was defeated, you see. That's where Satan was defeated. Now some of you say, well, wait a minute, he's still kind of out there doing his work, you know, and he's still kind of let loose to go here and to go there and to see people, and yes, that's true. We know of people that are on death row today that are waiting their execution, and sometimes we, we hear that they kind of run syndicates from even death row. But you know what? Their execution day is still set. And so is Satan's. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You see how powerful conviction is. The power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And in those three particular points, these devout Jews were convicted. And so it brings to mind this question, can there ever be a genuine conversion without genuine conviction? Can there ever be a genuine conversion without genuine conviction? It is sad that we live in a time of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. As he put it, and I know that he was from a liturgical background, so some of these things may going to lean in that direction, but nonetheless, listen carefully. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without requiring church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. But he also said this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That very idea and that very thought comes from Jesus himself. Who tells us in effect, unless we come and take up our own cross, take up our cross and follow him, we will not be his disciples. And so Peter's whole spirit-led sermon had been directed toward this single goal, that of producing the conviction of sin. And what we find in our text is that they accepted the message. Now this is, this is the wonderful part of what we've been reading for the last couple of weeks. That they accepted the message. 
They didn't argue with Peter. They didn't all of a sudden put on their arguing caps, you know, and say, oh, listen, you know, we're good Jews, or we've got to argue with you, no matter what. No, they listened. They were convicted. There was nothing to say but to ask the question, what shall we do? They had heard the gospel. They had heard the gospel from the Psalms. They, they were pricked to the heart. They were deeply stirred. They, but they believed the message and, and they received divine light and they were regenerated, which means they were born again. They were born again. The Holy Spirit had come alongside of them as we've spoken of. The work of the Spirit to come alongside, to reveal that divine light, to gain that understanding. It happened to us when we came to understand what it meant to know Christ. We could all say at some point in time, we all tried to read the Scriptures before we came to Jesus and it didn't make any sense to us. But then all of a sudden the light went on. Of course the light went on. The light of, of, of God's Spirit came on because He came alongside. And the light revealed the truth. And then all of a sudden what we had read before and didn't make sense was making a lot of sense now. That should be all of our testimonies. And it reminds us of Peter's uh, uh, Paul's words and Peter's words as well. Paul, first of all, in Romans chapter 10, when he says there in verses 9 through 14, he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This was a passage we read this, uh, as a matter of fact, this last Wednesday from Isaiah 28. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from the prophecy of Joel, which is also from Peter's uh, uh, sermon. And then verse 14 says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they not hear? Or how, how shall they hear without a preacher? And of course that's cleared up for us when it says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This is exactly what happened that day that Peter preached. Faith came by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, how? Through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is what was happening. Both the Word and the Spirit working together to bring these men to that point where they say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And it's at this point that they, they do turn to Peter and to the rest of the apostles. And they cried out in their distress, Men and brethren, what shall we do? But, but the agony of conviction had been experienced, you see. But I want to praise the Lord that, that, that God does, never, does not leave people there. I want to praise God that God does not leave any of us at that point of conviction.
Because if it was only to leave us at that point of conviction, then it would be condemnation and not conviction. He doesn't leave us at that point of wondering, what's going to happen from here? There's always an answer, you see. And they cried out, and it's interesting that their cry, their question, needs to be, needs to be examined a little closer. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Their distressful cry was not the same as that given by, by the Philippian jailer to Paul and Silas, as we will read later on in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. When he brought them out, it says that he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You notice it's not the same question. They said, what shall we do? They were thinking in terms of what good Jews do. We keep the law, we sacrifice, we come to the temple three times a year to offer these sacrifices, to celebrate these particular feasts, but now we've been awakened to something that has happened as a national sin before God, and and, and what shall we do about this? Well, what could they do about it? Could they undo what they had done, you see? There's something to, to, that, uh, to that effect being asked here. What, could they undo what they had done? What can be done? Jesus has been crucified. But Peter also told them he's risen. You see, could they undo what they had done? Not at all. Yet they felt instinctively there was something that they could do. Because the nation had rejected the Messiah and crucified Him. They were a nation without excuse. And certainly judgment was sure. But Peter says to them, in verses 38 and 39, he says, repent. Repent. Now, I want you to know that he's... he's Telling them to do two things. Not combined as, as one whole thought to, to create some kind of a theology about repenting and being baptized and, you know, and, and this is how you were saved. Because we know that we don't save ourselves and there's nothing that we can do for our own salvation. But it is very clear what Peter is saying to them when he says repent. Stop. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Two things. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says, for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. They, they needed to, first of all, in answer to their question, they needed, first of all, to separate themselves from their dreadful national sin. They needed to separate themselves from their dreadful national sin. And here's where separation comes in. Here's where we need to begin to look at this particular thought of separation. Peter simply tells them to repent. And they understood what repentance was. But he tells them to simply repent. Now we know that to repent means to change one's mind. Or direction. A lot of times we kind of include into that thought of repentance this, uh, this, this deep sorrow for sin. Now we know that uh, you can repent of sin and, and, and not uh, 
be sorry. Or as we've seen in the scriptures, there are people who have been very sorrowful but not repentant. (laughs) When Judas Iscariot comes to mind. But the act of repentance itself means to change one's mind or direction, to go completely in the opposite direction from where you were headed, from what you were doing, going in the complete opposite direction. And so they, they had thought us a certain way about Jesus before. As a whole nation, they had heard it. We mentioned last time, news travels fast. Everybody knew who Jesus was. But they had a certain, uh, they had a thought, they, they had thought a certain way about Jesus before. That most of them had considered him worthy for crucifixion. But now they must turn around their thinking. If they had thought him worthy of crucifixion in one direction, now they were to turn their thinking around to do what? Now they were to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. That's repenting from one direction to the other. And, and by the way, I, I, don't, I want, don't want you to think that we ought not to sorrow in our repentance. The Bible says that there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And we need to have that in our hearts. That's part of that conviction that we talked about earlier. But these people were understood, they understood what repentance was. They, they knew about repentance. They had heard about John the Baptist and his message of repentance. Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we hear of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry as it began after his temptation in the wilderness. The first thing that we hear is recorded of him in Matthew 4:17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so repentance involves a complete change of attitude as well. Instead of rejecting him, receive him. Repentance describes what coming to God is. You can't turn towards God without turning from the things He's against. You cannot turn towards God without turning from the things He is against. But you have to also understand in all of that that there is a great hope being given in repentance. Because it says to people, in effect, you don't have to keep going the way you're going. You can turn to God. You don't have to keep going down this road that's leading to destruction. You can turn and follow God. You can turn and follow toward or or, or press toward God. You don't have to keep going in this direction. That's hope. And that's a hope that people need today. It's something that people want and they need desperately. But because of the flesh, they fight it time and time and time and time again. And so he says, repent. You're of the mindset to do? Well, then do this, repent. Turn from where you're going and turn toward God. The second thing Peter tells them to do is be baptized, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now this would separate them visibly. And again, separation is involved here. This would separate them visibly from this nation that was under condemnation. And of course, as part of the nation that were responsible for the rejection of Christ, 
as part of the nation that they, they were responsible for the rejection of Christ, Peter says to them this. He says, change your attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ and give this outward witness. Give this outward witness of baptism. Be baptized in the name of the one you've rejected and you will no longer be under condemnation to those who rejected Christ, but you will be under grace because your sins are forgiven. So that is a, a full extent of the thought here of what Peter is saying to them about being baptized. Be baptized in the name of the one you've rejected and you'll no longer be under condemnation as those who rejected Christ. But you'll be under grace because your sins are forgiven you. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness. Remission is forgiveness. For the forgiveness of sins. You'll be under His grace. That's what we all want. That's what we all desire. That, that's what we all know we've received because we received it in coming to Christ. In receiving Christ, we have received this gift. Now some people have thought that uh, because Peter said, be baptized in the name of Jesus, that he was suggesting a, a different uh, baptismal formula from what was given by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. I'd like for you to turn there, if you will, for just a moment. Matthew 28, the very end of that gospel. There in verse 19, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I tend to think, you know, that Jesus in saying that was, was saying something of, of great importance here and establishing something of great importance that... that uh, uh, we need to baptize in, in, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is a tremendous statement that Jesus is making. And, and Jesus being who he is, it, it, uh, it would uh, uh, behoove us to listen to what Jesus is saying. And, and I think that in terms of, of, of levels of, of, of position and rank, at least in the church and in the body of Christ, that Christ being the head, that would be pretty good advice to follow being that Jesus is Jesus, and you know, Peter, of course, is certainly a part of the body of Christ, but uh, here again, Jesus is the head. I, I wonder if you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> because it amazes me how some denominations or sects that are not Trinitarian in their theology, in other words, who don't, uh, there are certain denominations and sects in the Christian uh, church, as it were, or Christendom, that, that, that do not believe in, in, in the uh, in, a, in the Trinity, as it were, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, three uh, persons, and uh, you know, one God in three persons, as it were. They will point to Peter's declaration here as proof that there is no such entity as a Trinity or a Triunity. And of course, they'll also say, well, we don't find the word Trinity in, in the Scripture. But uh, nonetheless, we see certainly its, its, its effects in the Scripture. But also that there is not a trinity in the Godhead. In other words, Jesus is Father, Jesus is Son, Jesus is Holy Spirit. This is oneness theology. This is what uh, certain Pentecostal denominations will teach at times. But this was something that the early church had to deal with as a, as a heretical view. And it amazes me that they will take the words of Peter over those of Jesus. But you see, the issue isn't baptism. The issue is the person of Jesus Christ. And the issue is what Jesus taught. 
what they have failed to recognize in Matthew chapter 28 is that the Lord is telling them in what name they were to baptize believers. And he uses the preposition meaning baptizing them unto, unto the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I think there's, uh, most translations will say in the name. And, uh, but in, in, in the Greek, it, it is very clear. It is unto, it is, uh, I think Darby's translation has it to the name of the Father and so on and so forth. But he was instructing that they not only baptize unto the name that implies the fullness of deity. Because that's what Jesus is saying. You baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because you are implying the fullness of deity here in baptism. But that, but that they are to baptize in the authority of that name as well. Jesus is giving the authority here because he is the authority. So he says, when, when, he, when he says that in verse 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. These are commands. He says, baptizing them in the name of, in the authority of the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. And there is the authority of that name. So when Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, He is commanding that they be baptized in the authority given by Jesus Christ unto the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit for remission of sins and the past will no longer be held against you. He is saying baptize them in the name that implies the fullness of deity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a very simple thing, but we sometimes complicate things. So I I, I wonder then why that is. You know, well, but, but you know... Peter said, yeah, but Jesus said. (laughs) Peter said nothing wrong. All Peter was doing was confirming what Jesus said. And the authority of Jesus Christ. And what was his authority? To baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We need to take time to see these things through completely before we start trying to tear down theologies that we can't tear down because the Word of God supports them. And so in verses 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 2, Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. As they repented and they demonstrated faith and obedience by baptism, the the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given to them as it had been given to the disciples and the apostles. It was promised, of course, in the Old Testament, as Peter said in in the prophecy of, of Joel. Just as he has said, what you see here, this is what's taking place. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Speaking to them. And he says, this is going to be for you as well. The promise is to you, he says, and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter promised that it would be given to their succeeding generations. To you and to your children, he says. As well as those who are afar off. 
Now it's common to think that what Peter was saying was that he, he was pointing down through time as well for everyone and to say that as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes on th- uh, through time and into the, the very present day in which we live, that the promise is ours as well. And of course, to a certain extent, that is true. But this could mean, uh, that, that this could mean all the people up to the present times. Is, 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 a, is something that we, we've experienced as well. But what does he mean by those who are afar off? You see, specifically what Peter was saying, as, as, as Scripture has consistently shown us here, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This is a, a pattern in Scripture. It speaks of Gentiles, those who are afar off. You see, Peter, I should say, Paul understood this in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, when he says, Therefore remember that you, and of course those in the church in Ephesus were Gentiles mostly, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, really the same phrase here, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who was far off? The Gentiles were far off. Who was near? Well, the Jews, because the, the Lord came to them. The Word of God came to them. So to those who are near and to those who are far off, being the Gentiles. And so that's the understanding here. But has, it, has that also reached to us today? Of course it has. Because of the faithfulness of those Jewish believers who continued to take the gospel as they were spread throughout the world. And then, of course, the word came to the Gentiles and has come to us today, both Jew and Gentile, where we are today. And the promise is ours. And it will be to the succeeding generations until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we close here, we're going to actually read verses 40 and 41 and begin here next time as we, as we did the same this last week. Kind of take a few steps forward and take one little step back so we can pick up uh, a few other things that we want to look at next time. But there's some significant statements made here in Acts 2, verses 40 and 41. It says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now some have thought, well, why is he telling them to be saved from this perverse generation as if to say that they themselves had to do something to be saved? But our understanding has to come back to the understanding of separation. It has to come back to this thought here. That when Peter is saying to them, be saved from this wicked and perverse generation, he is saying, separate yourselves. Separate yourselves. Cut yourselves off by baptism from this perverse generation. In other words, the repentance, the baptism that he has laid out before them to do. To turn from the direction they were going to the direction uh, of God. It requires this separation. The conviction comes first, then comes 
the work that we do in, in heeding God's word. Separate yourselves. Cut yourselves off from this perverse generation. The world has a certain way about it. We were all in the world. We followed after the things of the world. We've been deceived by the world. Then all of a sudden, new light, the light of the glory of Christ comes into our life. And, and we're told, repent and be baptized. And those two things there are terms of separation. Go a different direction. Give an outward response to the inward work that God has done. You're saying, I'm separating myself unto God. I'm separating myself from the world. I'm separating myself unto God. I'm going to begin to follow Him. I'm going to walk after Him. I'm going to do those things that honor Him. You see, this is, this is critical for us as we go back, as I close here today, but as I go back to that thought of being cut to the heart. You see, it, it, it saddens me, and I know it saddens many of you, that, that today the, one of the, the primary goals of, of churches is, is, is to grow in numbers and, and to look into every kind of way and every kind of methodology and every kind of, 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 of program to, to get numbers to come into church and, 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 and to fill seats. Uh, let's do things that will attract people. Let's go toward a professionalism. Let's, let's go toward just trying to make this, this uh, a pleasant experience for people. Let's do all kinds of plays in here. Let's, and oh, by the way, while we're doing this, let's not mention the name of Jesus just yet. Because we don't want to step on anybody's toes. We, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We, we certainly want them to come and, and, and feel like they're, you know, because, you know, we have to be relevant to the society in which we live. I'm using terms that are being used today. Relevance. Well, folks, I have to tell you this, but there's nothing more relevant today than the fact that this world without Christ is, is in sin and sin is what separates us from a holy God. And people need to know that. People need to know that. And so what do we have then to give them but the word of God and the name of Christ? What else is there? You see, I'm thankful when somebody stepped on my toes. At least it woke me up. You understand what I'm saying? I'm thankful for the day that somebody sat down with me and began to show me what the scriptures were saying about Jesus Christ and put me in there and said, look, this is you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without being straightforward, how many people will be lost for an eternity? Because we just want to make them feel comfortable. That's why I just smile when you say, it's too hot in there. It's too cold in there. We do our best. But what's coming in here? What are you hearing? And what are you receiving? 
from God. That's what we care about. We want you to know what God's Word says. I want you to be cut to the heart. We all need to be cut to the heart. But there's something good after that. I said this last week, I'll say it again. The Word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts in one way to expose. It heals in the other, other direction. One blade cuts, the other blade heals. But it's after we come to the realization of what we are before a holy God and to know that Jesus Christ came to heal us completely. This is why it says, by His stripes we are healed. And so, conviction and separation, too, Important things. And what we find also within are, the, are those issues of, of, of consolation and, and salvation or conversion. It, it was there, wasn't it? We didn't even have to mention them. But we could see it. The work of the Holy Spirit in bringing 3,000 souls into the kingdom of God. 3,000 souls into the church of Jesus Christ. Because someone who had been filled with the Holy Spirit stood up and preached the gospel. The empty chairs we see around us, God will fill when we stand up and tell people about Jesus. Let's pray.